Master Tavern Keeper's History of the Old World. And so, what was the army of this Scarab King like then? If the tally of his victories is anything to go by, it was a uh, very powerful force. Ah, indeed. Picture this, if you will. Ranks upon ranks of death-dealing warriors, descending upon the enemy, sowing destruction with every swipe of their kopeshes, and leaving the battlefield awash with spilt blood and dismembered bodies. That was the army of the Scarab King. Ah, yeah, yeah. Now that is more my kind of thing. Especially being something of a uh, swordsman myself. And quite an adept swordsman, I hear. Have you been in many battles? Several, yeah, yeah. Actually, there's not much to tell. I was no more than a uh, simple volier and never involved in any momentous engagements. They were all whilst I was working as a mercenary there in East Tylia. I found myself amongst the uh, rank and file of a number of armies, but uh, none were that large though. For the pockets of most merchant princes are not as deep as their boasts at the wine table would lead you to believe. How did uh, this ancient army compare? If this uh, Ramotep was a conqueror, such as you described, then his forces must have numbered in the uh, oh, thousands. An unbelievable number for the battlefields of today. Ah, indeed. Your insight serves you well. And yes, both the Scarab King's army and ancient armies in general were far larger than you see here fighting in the uh, internecine conflicts over on the Eastern Peninsula, or even back in the Empire, where manpower is greater. Ah, yeah, yeah. In ancient armies, the individual units themselves tended to contain uh, far more men than is common today. So the basic building blocks of each army were larger. But perhaps we should leave this uh, 40,000 foot view and get stuck in. It'll be much easier to get your head around what I mean if we talk specifics. Yeah, yeah, please. I for one want to hear all about this uh, army of the uh, Scarab King. It will be my pleasure. Well, the scholar Alan Gartner told myself and the other members of the audience that he had pieced together a fairly complete picture of the army from the uh, forgotten papyri, stone tablets and other sources that they had unearthed in the Museum of Altdorf. I remember that he did give one caveat to his discussion though. He said that the numbers he was giving to us were probably underestimates of the actual size of the army that strode out onto the ancient battlefield. As a great many of his numbers were based on those warriors who were interred with the fallen king and thus comprised only the very heart of the army during its time in the field. 
not the entirety of it. Not everyone committed ritual suicide upon the loss of their king, you see. He said that the total number of men for each battle also likely included many other additional units. Their very own uh, dogs of war, if you like, drawn from the subjected warriors from rival kings and also allies, swelling the numbers as much as tenfold. Indeed, as an example, in one of the texts, it mentions that in the Battle of the Causeway of Kernark, auxiliaries from the powerful Ebonians and nomadic Ahed also fought alongside Ramhotep, bringing the total number of warriors under Ramhotep's command to in excess of 60,000 men in that one engagement alone. By Ulrich's beard, that is almost the entire population of the city of Talapheim. And uh, I should know, one of my very first jobs as a mercenary at the tender age of 19 was guarding the census collectors of that city. It was uh, the year before war broke out between the uh, old Ottilian Emperor Frederick V and uh, my namesake, the Grand Duke of Middenland. Oh, back in uh, 49 then? Yeah. Ah, yes. I'd already left the Empire by then, and uh, been sailing around the Southlands for two years, just on the verge of entering my thirties, as I recall. Ah, now, that was a birthday. Quite a night, by all accounts. I only wish I could recall it. Ah, anyway, how the time flies. Yeah, yeah, it most certainly does. Well, back to your point, though. The numbers are astounding. I doubt the most Tylean city-states have populations of more than 10,000. Just to uh, put it into perspective for you uh, neophytes. Anyway, it was a different world in ancient times. The savage environment the peoples of that age found themselves in required savage and large armies. When it comes to total war, and the survival of your kingdom, you either give everything or you end up giving up everything. There is little in the way of middle ground. And uh, then I am guessing that the uh, acquisition of resources, manpower, and the forging of alliances must have been even more important uh, for those uh, early kingdoms of man than it is today. I suppose it comes down to the uh, old adage I learnt as a child back in Nordland. When spiders unite, they can tie down a bear. Ah, I like that. I'll have to remember it. And yes, armies needed numbers. Or they would have been simply washed away in the morass of their enemies who flourished in the wake of the War of the Beard and the retreat of the Elves. The uh, Orcs, as I'm sure you can imagine, were particularly prevalent, as soon becomes the case for the Greenskins without the continual culling of their numbers. And this is still true today. And the reason why the Empire, as it bickers and fights with itself, has suddenly become so vulnerable. Any war leader 
with an army the size of Ramotep's, potentially coming down from the Chaos Waste, say, where fierce warriors are forged upon the anvil of battle daily, could easily sweep all before it away with but a determined push if the uh, Elector Counts continue to remain divided. Although, luckily for us, the forces of Chaos too are also divided by the rivalries of both their gods and their champions. If that ever changes, then we are all at an end. Ah. Oh, and uh, speaking of allies and alliances, that reminds me. Now, and this is a slight aside, please forgive me, but the reliance on allies has continued in Numas even into the uh, current age. And uh, by allies, I do mean living allies. They are still a feature of the undead army of Numas, believe it or not. And uh, this is, of course, in stark contrast to all the other cities of the Tomb Kings who do not suffer the living to exist. But uh, anyway, I shall uh, talk more about all that later. First, let's talk numbers. The Scarab King was the leader of a huge army, the beating heart of which was a formation known as the Scarab Legion, equivalent to the Tomb Guard of Qatar and later other cities. These numbered between 250 to 300 of the king's elite and acted as his personal bodyguards. And we know it was this many because these all, and I do mean all, committed ritual suicide upon the assassination of their liege and were interred in the central chamber of his scarab pyramid. It was in point of fact one of these that uh, Gartner uncovered, studied and then donated to the Museum of Altdorf until it uh, mysteriously disappeared after the unsolved murder of the scholar. Still, such a shocking turn of events. Anyway, that's not all. The tablet that Gartner translated also gave some fascinating details with regards initiation to the hallowed ranks of the Scarab Legion. It seemed to involve excessive ritual scarring and the letting of blood in dedication to Ramhotep himself, the Scarab God, and one more mysterious deity alluded to but not mentioned directly. These rituals were apparently led by Ramhotep's high commander, Pedjet, he of the Nine Bows, and a Bonian who was described as fighting with demonic fury in battle after battle. It was known that he worshipped a mysterious exotic god of his tribe in addition to the Scarab god, who demanded unrelenting dedication to its worship and the attainment of perfection by its adherence. I can't imagine who it could have been. <laughs> but it is also said that the influence of this uh, Ebonian cult penetrated deep into the Scarab Legion and as a result of this dual patronage, the members of the Legion 
were the most richly outfitted in the army with their every need catered for and when they were not in battle they lived lives of debauched luxury nevertheless despite what you might think this did not soften them for the dedication to martial perfection demanded by Pedget and their own fanatical devotion to their king kept their blades keen and their appetite for blood ever unsatisfied. They must have been quite a sight on the battlefield, I think. Their armour and equipment was trimmed with an excess of gold and they were bedecked in a great deal of uh, ornamentation, including jade scarab icons, numerous rings and skin piercings, hooked into their flesh on their chests, abdomens and faces. Indeed, both in and out of their scarab armour, they must have been quite an intimidating sight. However, it was not the scarab legion who brought the fight to their enemies. That was not their role. No, that honour went to the nearly 600 chariots, known as the uh, Riders of Ksar, who formed the vanguard of the army. Ksar was one of the uh, three elemental gods we talked about earlier, if you recall, the uh, god of the desert wind. Ah, yeah, yeah, of course. Ah, good. Well then. Each chariot was pulled by a pair of horses, off bedecked in rare animal hides and feathers, and the charioteers themselves were each armed with a spear and bow. Their chariots were created by skilled artisans, often gilded in gold and covered with the images of skulls, bones and other symbols so beloved by the mortuary cult. Their riders, too, displayed accoutrements fitting their station, and the charioteers were protected by the finest armour outside of the uh, ostentatious Scarab Legion. Although uh, these, too, were decorated by uh, precious metals and valuable jewels. These elites of the king were much feared by the enemies of Ramhotep and held in almost equal regard to the Scarab Legion itself. The entire number was split into seven groups, each numbering between 50 and 100 charioteers and led by one of the king's most trusted commanders, each known as a uh, master of chariots. And each of these was a member of the royal family. Gartner uh, listed them in his book. Uh, just a moment, I've got it here in my box. Ah, here we go. Just a moment. Uh, ah, here we are, here we are. Prince Amun. Prince Herkep. Prince Kashef. Prince Paraherwenemeth. Prince Meriatum. And also the princesses, Meritamen and Nebetawi. Just names to us now, of course, but 
From amongst this number sprung forth the conspirators who would eventually end their king's life. We do not know who, why, nor the road they took from a loyal commander to a vengeful murderer. But one or more of these uh, prince and princesses forsook their oaths and plotted the death of their king. I only mention it to tell you this. Keep your friends and family close and treat them well. And do not waste your time on those who do not do the same to you. Cut them out of your life quickly and completely. For if you allow them to uh, get a foothold, you will have earned yourself a lifelong enemy that you will not be able to easily overcome. Ah, yeah. What of the old phrase? Keep your friends close, but your enemies closer than... Ah, yes, I know of it. But I have found that uh, keeping close tabs on uh, people who are simply waiting to turn on you is a bit of a waste of time. A dead or at least a estranged enemy, is a lot less hassle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> True. My favourite kind of foes are the ones I just run through with my blade. Ha, 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 ha. Indeed. That is good. Anyway, back to Ramotep. The large, unwieldy groups of charioteers I just mentioned were further broken down into units of five to ten chariots, each led by a first charioteer. And it was many of these veterans who eventually went on to become members of the Scarab Legion for their skills in being able to kill from such a difficult position as atop a chariot made them exemplary warriors, for the role was not an easy one. On the battlefield, the first an enemy would have seen of a chariot advance was the cloud of dust thrown up high above the desert sands before the deadly machines careened towards their foes and crashed into their lines, impacting with bone-shattering power and crushing the bodies beneath their heavy wheels. However, be under no illusion, chariots are by their nature fragile and, in rough terrain, especially prone to breaking down. On the charge, they could cut through the lines of almost any enemy though, puncturing stalwart defensive formations and giving an ingress to both the cavalry and the infantry that followed behind, leaving them free to harry the rear of the enemy's army. However, without support, particularly that of the cavalry, they were very vulnerable to being counter-attacked and so this precious existence tended to weed out all but the hardiest soldiers. And it is on to the cavalry that we will next turn our attention. The cavalry of the city of Numas numbered over a thousand horsemen and was led by Ramhotep's infamous master of horse, Jakai. Jakai too was an Abonian, a grizzled veteran from the lands to the southeast of Nehekara, who bore the scars of many bloody campaigns. 
He was the primary member of the Scarab King's Council of War, and his knowledge and experience of mounted warfare was second to none. In fact, it was his expertise and sharp tactical mind that was behind many of the victories of the Scarab King. The more numerous were lightly armoured horsemen armed with bows, whose role was to both act as scouts roving ahead of the campaigning army, and then as skirmishers loosing arrows against the front lines of the enemy once battle was joined. These were drawn from the uh, nomadic tribesmen of the desert, many described as having been born in the saddle and able to shoot on the gallop with unerring accuracy. The Scarab King paid handsomely for these men. The news of their efficiency in battle soon spread and Ramhotep's great rival, Rakaf III of Khemri, saw to it that they became a permanent feature in the army of his city as well. This precedent was duly copied by the other armies of Nehekara over time. Each tomb king would secure the services of these men by granting the tribesmen the freedom of the desert in their domain and the protection of their army, as well as uh, showering their chieftains with as much gold as they could carry. In exchange, each received an annual tithe of warriors who would have to swear an oath of unswerving loyalty and obedience to the king. Rakaf, by doing this, nullified the advantage his rival had had over him up until that point, and the return to the status quo prolonged the conflict between the two cities by many, many years. And so, on to the second type of cavalry. These regiments of horsemen fought with both spear and sword, but uh, primarily the former. They would drive their heavy spears into their foes with bone-jarring force, flattening the front ranks before trampling the survivors beneath the thundering hooves of their steeds, each footfall able to crush a man's skull like an eggshell. They were not like the heavy cavalry of today, though. Such things as heavy armour or barding were yet to be invented for cavalry. Instead, they had to rely on their large, sturdy shields and the blessings of their gods for their protection. They were also not independent units, like a lance of Bretonian knights, say. Rather, the cavalry worked as part of the spearhead of the army, as its shock cavalry, alongside the charioteers, to open up holes in the enemy battle line to be exploited by the main blocks of infantry. In many other armies of ancient Nehekara, the numbers of horsemen was few, as only those warriors who had proven themselves by slaying a dozen foes in mortal combat were deemed worthy to join one of the king's valuable cavalry legions. However, in armies of later periods, their numbers became more numerous. The reason for this, if we ask, was simple. Horses needed a great deal of water to survive the desert heat, which made the steeds more valuable than the soldiers who rode them. Thus, in earlier dynasties, horses were simply too rare to throw into combat in any great number. But as time went on and hardier breeds were bred, their numbers increased. In the second dynasty, Ramhotep was unusual in that he recruited from amongst the desert dwellers, something that was not adopted by others until much later in the history of Nehekara. And so, on to the 
regular infantry. It is recorded that 17 regiments strode out of the gates of Numas under the command of the Scarab King, each consisting of between 250 and 300 men, so altogether between four and five thousand warriors. By Ulrich's beard, that too is a staggering number. Ah, indeed. Each of these regiments were then broken up into smaller companies of around 50 men, each specialised in the use of a particular weapon or fighting style. A great majority appeared to have been archers who would block out the sun with a deluge of arrows. There was a strong tradition of archery in Numas, and hunting was a popular sport with the archers of the city being held in high regard. The second most common infantry type were units of spearmen who also bore tall shields to create bulwarks in the Nehekaran lines. There may too have been other types of warrior blocks, but these were not recorded in the texts that Gartner had access to. Anyway, it was these units that formed the fighting bulk of both this army and of the other cities throughout the living history of the Tomb Kings, and were renowned for their unwavering discipline. If you want to uh, visualise these warriors in your fights, picture this. Many wore handsome gold-edged breastplates with a scarab icon prominently placed at their throat. Additionally, they had etched gold chase braces and greaves and a hieroglyph-inscribed golden helm to complete their armour. Each carried a kopesh, its guard and pommel decorated with gold and long bronze daggers hung at their waists. Personal items such as rings, pendants, bracelets were also common, as was a second hand weapon. And finally, the tablet mentioned one last unit type that featured heavily in the battles of the Scarab King, the Ushabti. These were large statues adorned with the heads of gods and carved from solid stone in general marble, but sometimes jade. They were then plastered, painted, and decorated with filigreed gold and dazzling polished jewels. An Ushabti is just a statue, but these can be imbued with life by the incantations of the lich priests of the mortuary cult. These are the very same incantations that the vizier of Qatar, Sehenesmet, became so proficient at. As the ritual is completed, the Ushabti's eyes would glow with a golden light and they would step down from their plinths and dioceses and silently march to war. In the annals of the Scarab King, it says that the warriors of Nehekara took great strength from the presence of the Ushabti fighting with them, standing firm even in the most dire of situations. My goodness, terrifying. What does... Uh... Ushapti actually mean, by the way. Ah, yes. It means chosen of the gods. For the souls that are summoned forth to animate the statues are the souls of Nehekara's mightiest heroes. Anyway, in this way, Ushapti strode alongside the forces of the Scarab King like gods of war, withstanding enormous damage and crushing the hardiest of enemies with contemptuous ease. And this was all that was written of the armies of the Scarab King.
There were a number of other types of unit in the arms of Nehekara, but they tended to be rarer, and we shall discuss them as they crop up in our narrative. But for the moment, you should have a good idea of the core of the armies that fought on both sides of the rebellion against Nagash. Well, that's enough talk. I need a drink, and I need to empty my bladder. I suggest, neophytes, you all do the same, although not at the same time. Thank <laughs> you.